You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. If you are new here, I'll introduce kind of what we're doing. We've been going through the book of Malachi for about a month now. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's a short prophetic book. Um, to God's people from, from the prophet Malachi, it's an oracle or a burden. It's a rebuke. Um, it's a heavy, heavy text, uh, but it's extremely meaningful, and it's been very good uh, up until this point, and I'm excited for the rest. We're kind of in the middle right now, so that we're going to be eventually reading in Malachi. Um, you've, you've maybe heard the story or the analogy of, of the surgeon who has a patient who's very sick and the surgeon refuses to operate on their patient because they don't want to cause them the injury by cutting them with their scalpel. This would be the worst surgeon in the world, right, who, who didn't want to uh, cut their, their patient open to remove what was wrong on the inside because they were, you know, I don't know, scared of the blood or they didn't want to cause the injury of uh, cutting open their patient to deal with the bigger problem. And I say this because I, I'm reminding us, I suppose, that shying away from, from the, the parts of the Bible that uh, perhaps frighten us or we're unfamiliar with, or shying away from the things that make us feel uncomfortable with Scripture or with our faith, um, is a disservice to ourselves. We do a disservice when we pretend that, um, you know, Malachi's words either aren't there, they don't matter, we avoid them, whatever. No, it's important, um, perhaps more important, to look into uh, these kinds of things and see what God has to say about them and let God do the surgery in our hearts, okay? So that's what, that's what we're doing this morning, and I wanted to uh, just say that. Before I read this scripture, to open your hearts to the Lord... Um, Okay, let's get started. Uh, today's passage is in Malachi chapter 2. We're partway through, starting at uh, verse 10, and I'll read through to verse 16. Malachi 2, 10 to 16. Here's what the prophet says. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married a daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife 
of your youth. For the man who does this, uh, pardon me, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to not leave us as we are, but to reach inside and change the things that aren't right to redeem us, God. So may we be willing to accept what you have for us this morning, God, for we know that it's good. We thank you. And God, we give you all the glory now when we we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've been uh, reading Malachi, the book, and as uh, Greg's been sharing from it, an observation that I felt was true was that The problems that have led up to this point, the the reason that uh, Malachi would need to come in and and directly rebuke the Lord's people, the problems that have been building up for probably a long time now, I think that part of the cause of these problems is that God's people have believed a lie that that God is um, not interested in them, that he doesn't care about them, that he's not close to them. They seem to think that the Lord doesn't truly care about his people and that if anything God just wants uh, a religious performance and checklist, you know, checked off. And so following suit, their religion has been um, it's been one of convenience, not of commitment. Their worship and, and their teaching has been half-hearted and it's out of obligation and it's very biased. It's not loving devotion to God. So Malachi comes in and tells them that God is incredibly displeased with this. Um, if you've missed the, the first three sermons, you can go listen to them on our podcast it's on our website and on iTunes. Uh, please do that because um, those passages and, and Greg's sermons about them describe kind of what's led up to the point that we're at right now, right? The, the false religion that has um, kind of brought us to this part in the book. So now as we come to, well, eventually we're coming to the end of chapter 2. Um, Malachi begins to show us how their lack of of true religion is kind of seeping out. Um, It's playing out in their conduct, in their living, right? In their behavior, in the way that they treat um, each other. Because I I do think that they've believed the lie that that a half-hearted faith wouldn't impact anything, right? Or that that God doesn't really care about what they do. He just wants them to, I don't know, um, go to church, so to speak. Um, That God's not invested in their their day-to-day living. And the fallout is, is quite bad. Their faithless religion has poisoned their dealings with one another as we read. Uh, So let's look at a a few of the main verses in the passage. We're going to talk about those. 
and see what they have for us. I'm looking at verse 10 again. The prophet is appealing to the fact that um, they share a common father, uh, so much so that he includes himself in the rebuke, right? He says, have we not all one father? Has, God, has one God not created us? Now, this is true. There's, there's an ethnic aspect to this where God's people do share an ancestry, right? They come from a long line um, back to Abraham and so on where they're, they are a peculiar people called by God and, and they're a family in that way. Um, but have we all not one father? Father is capitalized. And I think generally the prophet is reminding them that God has created them as a human race and they have common ground, right? They have common ground found in their father, God. They're one. And, and these questions that he's putting forth in verse 10 are rhetorical questions and they suggest their outcome, right? They suggest something. The prophet is saying that the faithless behavior towards each other essentially means that they don't serve the same Lord and they don't come from the same loving creator. Check, check. Cut out. They don't have the same uh, creator. They're not the same group of people because of the way that they're treating each other. They're treating each other as if they don't even know, care, or love about each other at all. And so how could they come from the same family or have the same God? Maybe they claim to. to they claim to come from the same father and ancestral line, but their, their faithlessness towards each other does not display this. Like if they were united in God, they wouldn't be running around breaking promises to one another all the time, right? They would be treating one another with the family love that comes from their heavenly father. So that's what those questions are basically saying when he asks them. Is that they act as if they're not united, as if they don't come from the same creator or have the same father at all. And so already in verse 10 we see... Their lack of authentic religion has impacted their lives, their daily lives. The result of their uh, false worship and the false teaching mentioned earlier in the book has, has began to unravel their moral fabric and the way that they deal with one another. And as God sees this happening, he steps in to say, it's not only hurtful to one another, but it profanes the covenant that he made with their fathers, which they understand and they know about. He's saying that he cares. He cares about the way they treat each other. So I'm finding that already in verse 10, the prophet is explaining to them how God takes their promises seriously. God takes our promises so seriously. He does. He takes the promises we make amongst ourselves really seriously, probably a lot more seriously than we even do. This sounds, um, this is a basic lesson. This is kind of, uh, you know, nothing new, I suppose. You know, keep your, <laughs> when you make a promise, keep it. Well, okay, duh. But unfortunately, this is a lesson I think we can all take to heart today to hear this. Human beings have a chronic problem with breaking promises, don't we? When I say yes, it means yes, unless it means no or maybe. 
basically. So this goes back to, again, the theme of what I was saying before, where we think that God only cares about the really religious and spiritual and churchy stuff, and the rest he doesn't really have time for or he's not really interested in. That's not true. God cares. He cares about you. He cares about the things you do. He cares about whether we keep our word. He cares about whether we keep our word in relationships, in school, in marriage, in friends, in business, in work, and in church. So we're buying a lie if we think that God is not interested in us seeing our words through, right? That he only cares about, um, I don't know, religious stuff. We can't separate them. He cares. He cares, like I said, more than we know. I don't know how else to say it than to just keep saying that he cares. He cares about the things that we do and the way we do them. It matters to him. I don't need to go on and on about it other than to remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew. Matthew 5:37. Let what you say be simply, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There it is. Can we agree to take this seriously? I think we have to. We have to take this seriously if we're going to um, get anything or understand, I suppose, the rebuke in Malachi. Uh, Your yes be yes and your no be no. That means a lot. So... Just there at the end of verse 10, the prophet says that God's covenant is profaned when we deal falsely within our relationships. God's covenant is profaned when we deal falsely with our relationships. Now, what's, what does that mean? I want to share a little bit about covenant with us this morning. And I say a little bit because covenant, the word covenant and the meaning of it is a huge Huge, very meaningful, very deep, uh, you know, doctrinally, theologically, it means so much. And there's no, I, I wouldn't even know how to explain it if I did have the time, let alone, um, you know, telling you everything in one sermon. So I just want to, I guess, scratch the surface and maybe consider why, why Malachi starts talking about covenant and he keeps bringing up covenant and breaking covenant with God in this rebuke. Um, to the people. So covenant refers, very generally, it refers to an agreement where two parties promise to uphold their end of the deal no matter what. It's a promise, but it's a promise where both parties commit. Okay? That's the difference between a promise and a covenant is one where both parties agree to keep their word. And biblically, um, covenant is usually a promise between God and people, or it's a promise between people in the sight of God, conferred by God, by His Spirit, as it says here. So it's not just a, it's not just a contract, uh, like a telus contract. It's a it's a, a spiritual, meaningful, deep thing. Um, either between God and us or between us with God, okay? Um, 
God has made many covenants to, to the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's throughout their history, all the way from Adam to Abraham to Moses and elsewhere. God makes covenant with his people. Now, he talks about covenant, and then, and then Malachi kind of brings up some specifics. He goes for some, a uh, couple of issues that he sees are worth mentioning in light of the breaking of God's covenant. Let's look at what those are. Um, first, he says, they've married daughters of foreign gods. So, so their men have, in essence, become son-in-law to false gods. They've become son-in-law to, to um, idols, to gods who are false and this profanes God's sanctuary in Jerusalem. This is a place very important to God. He's saying, this matters. The stakes are so high. My sanctuary has been profaned by you doing this. It should be my dwelling place. God's dwelling place amongst his people, right? But the people of Judah have invited in other gods by marrying those who worship them, and the consequences are huge. We already read. And then the second example, Malachi starts going on about covenant again when he uh, talks about marriage in verses 14 and 15, saying this, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. So there, that's an agreement between two people conferred by God. God witnessed it. You were... The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? Did God not join them with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So Malachi is talking about fidelity in marriage and infidelity. He's calling it out. Because marriage is supposed to bear the beautiful image of covenant as intended by God. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of God's covenant to his church and his people. God's will for marriage is that it would be a covenant between a husband and wife and would be conferred or sealed by his Holy Spirit. Meaning that marriage would be an unending bond to becoming one flesh, as it says in Genesis. Marriage should be a faithful relationship that does not end until your life reaches its own end. And even today, um, you know, millennium, millennia, millennium later, um, <laughs> traditional vows that we speak at our wedding ceremonies, um, you know, they are for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and so on. I committed to hold up my vow to Carisalyn even when things became difficult when we were married. That was our promise, right? We promised to love one another even when the going gets really, really tough. To love one another when we don't feel like loving one another. A covenant to each other made before God the Father till the end. So I want to explain it just a little bit more, um, what this covenant could mean. Um, God made us in his image. 
Like he said in verse 10, you know, are we all not created by one God? And if we believe this, this is important. God is faithful, right? God is perfectly 100% faithful. God has never failed to hold up his end of a covenant that he has made. Even when it cost him greatly. Right? So if we're made in God's image, if we believe this, this means that we were made to be faithful as he is faithful. This means that we are meant to uphold relationships in love as he does, even sacrificially. Spouses are made to love one another, even when it means sacrifice and selflessness. And as a husband and wife are faithful to this, they have the opportunity to to indeed reflect their creator, to reflect his character of, of perfect faithfulness. Um, Deuteronomy 4.31 says this, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That's all the way back in Deuteronomy. So even at the end of the Old Testament with Malachi sharing um, you know, his prophecy for God's people, this still is true. If God is faithful, this is still true. That he will not forget. He hasn't forgot his covenant to their fathers that he swore many, many, many generations ago. So this is all well and good. But you and I and Malachi know for sure that we have a problem with keeping promises. We have a problem with it. People, God's people, everyone, has a big problem with promises and covenants to one another and with their God. Um, since we're talking about this, as a side note, I, I would love it if you went home, and not right now, um, but when you go home, I would love it if uh, you took some time to read the book of Hosea, or Hosea, I don't know how, Hosea, I guess. Um, it's another short uh, prophetic book in the Old Testament. Um, take that as your homework, and you'll see how uh, the, the meaning of God's covenant to his people, in spite of their faithlessness, you'll see uh, of a crazy picture of what that looks like in the book of Jose, where um, I won't spoil it for you because I want you to read it, but it's, it is incredible, and I want you to read that and consider that uh, after today's message, thinking of God's faithfulness and covenant. Um, okay, so as I read and I got to the end, uh, uh, verse 16, if you were reading in your own Bibles, um, you may have been reading in your own Bibles and it, and it would have sounded a little different than the ESV 
uh, translation which we had on the PowerPoint and that I was reading from, if you had an NASB or New King James Version or other popular versions, in verse 16, it would say, the Lord hates divorce. It would say, the Lord hates divorce. And it didn't say that in the ESV. So you may have been uh, feeling worried or bothered at the difference um, in translation. Um, so I, I wanted to bring this up because, yes, it, it does matter, and it's a, a worthwhile thing to ask or, or, or wonder about. But what I will say is that Malachi 2, verse 16, is one of the most difficult and disputed verses for translation in all of the Old Testament. This is because uh, the biblical Hebrew as well as the Greek versions, um, they bring us into the ballpark of what we read in either ESV or, or, the, or other translations. They bring us to the ballpark, but there is still gray area as to how it should be read uh, today in English. That's the way it is. So don't, don't worry if your Bible reads differently than the person uh, beside, beside yours is reading in their Bible, because the meaning is, is the same. The meaning is the same, okay? The wording can be different, but the meaning is the same. However your translation puts it, the message doesn't change. If it says that God hates divorce, this is because, he, like we were saying, he made marriage to be a mirror image of that which cannot be broken, that is, his faithfulness to his people, his love for his church. The Lord has never broken his promises, and so it's his will that we wouldn't either. Okay? It's as simple as that. So, God hates divorce. This comes down to the fact that it's simply not his will for his people. God hates it when we break covenant with one another because that's not his will. Right? That's not how he intended it in the beginning, was for relationships to be broken. That's not his will. It never was. It hurts him. Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? God is love. God is holy. His love is perfect. His love is the supreme source of all. And his presence is the truth and fullness of love. But you and I know that sin has twisted and changed things. Even the idea of love, covenant, and faithfulness. Um, our understanding of these things are not complete or perfect in the way that God had designed them to be. And this is because of sin and self selfishness, um, self-serving. In Malachi's day, just like in ours, um, I think that love and marriage have become um, commodified. They've become a thing that we use like a product, right? If this relationship is meeting my needs... And it's worthwhile, it's worth my money. Um, if this commitment serves me how I would like it to, then I'll continue to meet my end of the deal. 
And this is not how God intended it. Um, I want to read verse 16 again. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. The blood is on his hands, so to speak. Uh, So guard yourselves in your spirit and don't be faithless. Don't be faithless. When when God um, um, agrees with a marriage covenant, did he mean for it to end, for, for the spouse to stop loving each other? Was that his intention? No, of course not. So what's our call this morning? What's, um, how do we make of this? The first thing is the obvious one. I said it already. Uh, we keep our covenants with one another. Keep your promises, big or small. Follow through on your word. And consider the importance of it. Don't make uh, promises that you aren't going to be able to keep. Take your word seriously, because God does. Keeping covenant, on the other hand, keeping your word is worship, right? It's worship to the God who created covenant, who purposed it for a reason. It's worship to him. It glorifies him, and it displays the perfection of his faithfulness and sacrificial love, even in our imperfect relationships on earth, right? It's a reflection of his perfection, Let's also remember that uh, God is invested and does care deeply about our relationships with one another. Okay, He's gone to the greatest lengths to make the way open for us to know one another, to know what love is, and to love one another. Our relationships with one another matter a lot to God. And so I think what the prophet is saying is that God's not asking for lip service or obligated worship or empty religion, right? We know this, but this is an example of it. He loves us so much more than that. He wants more than that. He wants to know us and for us to know him. This is why the prophet is saying, if you come to worship with faithlessness in your lives, Even in weeping and crying out on the altar, this worship doesn't matter. It's not pleasing to the Lord. Because he desires more for us than that, right? Than just a a lip service of, of whatever. No. He wants our relationships to reflect the beauty of his covenant love for us. And he wants us to know him in that way as well. Deeply and truly. So we've mostly been talking about um, covenant in, in the Old Testament. But as Christians, the most beautiful culmination of God's covenant faithfulness to his people 
is in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Jesus fulfills and embodies the promises made all through the history of Israel. He came to fulfill them and to live them out and to display them ultimately in his death and resurrection. I, have, uh, I want to end uh, this morning with two longer scriptures. The first one is from the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah 3. It's another prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one uh, teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is a promise made in the Old Testament. And reading it now, it reminds us of Jesus Christ. If we turn to the book of Hebrews, it brings us right there. Hebrews 10, uh, 12 to 22. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, now the covenant is about him. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. That sounds familiar. For after this saying, this is the covenant that I will make with those after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is where we find forgiveness of sins. The, uh, the redemption by the blood of Jesus. If, if Malachi's uh, rebuke to, to God's people means anything to you, if it, if it causes you to think and, and um, remember, uh, remember sin or, or your brokenness and your relationships and your life, and there are things that you haven't 
ask forgiveness for or found the forgiveness of Christ in. You can do that. You should do that. Because he is faithful. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful in his covenant to us. To be faithful to us. We find it in Jesus. And so we have an invitation uh, to communion. We do communion at the gate uh, most weeks. And as we do this, we have the time to reflect on the the symbolism of the, the juice symbolizing Jesus' blood shed on the cross and and the the bread or the crackers symbolizing his body broken on the cross for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so like I said, reading about about the rebuke and the need for for repentance and forgiveness. If this if this is something that uh, uh, strikes you, use communion as an opportunity of reflection and prayer and repentance. Because I'm telling you, when you do that and as you do that, Jesus is faithful. God is faithful to forgive us through His Son. He will draw us near to Him as we do this. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith for him to to cleanse us and clean us of our sin. So don't, uh, don't hide away. You know, if, if God wants to do heart surgery in your life and take away the things that are killing you on the inside, don't hide away from, from his, uh, his redemption, the ways that he would uh, open you up and take out the things that hurt you in order to heal you and redeem your life. Draw near to him. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And repentance and, and thanksgiving uh, to Jesus and his sacrifice. Um, so like I said, we have communion on the tables. I'm inviting you to do this, uh, to worship through the act of communion, the remembrance of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection for our sins. And you can come up now or any time during, during worship and take that. And uh, yeah, the band's going to play. And we'll continue uh, worshiping through music. And then we'll close. So.